This is the Flying and More podcast, episode three. Today I'm going to be interviewing my dad on his humorous experiences on his private pilot check ride. I'll actually get it started before we get too far into this introduction. So how do you, do you start out in aviation? Well, August, I flew several times before thinking about getting my certificate. As a teen, I sat right seat with a dentist pilot who flew us from Mount Shasta to Concord and back. On my very first flight, we departed and climbed the cruise, but turned around 15 minutes later because the weather looked threatening. On my second flight the next day, we used AM radio station and Loran to navigate the obvious VFR path site south. The pilot was cautious and prepared. Four or five years later, after studying physics and computer science at the university, I took an engineering job at TRW in Redondo Beach, California. One of the engineers in the lab was a private pilot, and I sat right seat on a few flights out of the Nyes with him. His marriage was falling apart, and looking back, I'm not so sure he was in the right frame of mind to pilot. He'd chewed all the fingernails off both hands due to his marital anxieties. I'm not talking about short nails, no no nails, all the way back to his cuticles. The nails were gone, eaten. Now that I think of aeronautical decision-making and five Ps, the pilot, the plane, the passenger, the plan, and programming, I'm not so sure I ought to have flown with him. After his divorce, his fingernails grew back. Each birth, uh, after that, each birthday, my wife took me on a daring adventure. One birthday, we rode hot air balloons as paying passengers. The next year, we bungee jumped off an abandoned bridge in the Los Angeles mountains. The year after that, we took a two-day hang gliding training course. We didn't finish the second day because my instructor lost control of the glider and I crashed nose first from about 15 feet above the ground. The glider was repairable, but my only injury was to my ego. Again, looking back, I had not done any research on my instructor. Again, not so sure that I had uh, done those five Ps. So one of my former PhD students became a private pilot and then a CFI, and I told him that once he had about 600 hours that I would fly with him. It took him a few years to accumulate so many hours, and once he did, I became his third student. Okay, so what challenges did you have to overcome your private pilot? My first hurdle was getting my third class medical certificate. Four years ago, I discovered that I had severe coronary artery disease. My coronary arteries are filled with calcified plaques. When I first viewed my coronary angiogram, that's a CAT scan that shows how blood flows through my coronary arteries, it seemed likely I wouldn't have long to live. The doctor who first diagnosed me estimated that my expected life remaining lifespan was about five years. It looked like the arteries of a hundred year old, a centenarian. The blood squeezes itself past narrowing so thick and tortuous that my arteries remind me of mountain cataracts and artesian wells. 
few people alive carry as much arterial calcification as I do. I live beneath a Damocles sword. Curiously, I am really fit. I have a VO2 max in the 50s, and I'm in the top 2 or 3% of aerobic fitness for my age. I elected to have a coronary artery bypass surgery, cabbage as it's known in the medical literature. The cabbage fixed my heart's hypokinesis and electrical no anomalies. With hypokinesis and electrical anomalies, you can't get a third class medical. It only modestly reduces the risk of heart attack. Flying would require a special issuance third class medical certificate. The federal air surgeon asked me for a set of exams, which came back that my heart was in good shape. However, he sent me back for a 24-hour Holter monitor test and a repeat of the previous exams because my heart rhythm experiences frequent PVCs and PACs, benign arrhythmias, but those needed to be explored further. Nine months after first applying for my medical, I was granted a special issuance under the condition that in three more months, I repeated all the exams I had just taken. Having the special issuance, I hopped on to basic med to avoid the expense and waste of medical resources, which, which I did not need. Besides the medical, I've always had a hard time with rote memorization. Solving hairy, nasty math comes far easier to me than remembering the names of five people around a table. I found it impossible to remember the dialogue to get clearance from the ground controller. I got nauseous when I had to stick my head into the baggage door to extract or put the tow bar away. I constantly flared too high or applied the brakes when I meant to apply the rudder on landings. I'm glad the Cessna Skyhawks, Skyhawks are sturdy little planes. So what do you do when you're not flying to keep up your flying skills like right now? We're about a month into the COVID-19 pandemic and no one is flying. I occasionally exchange check ride oral answers with a kid who wants to fly for a living. It would make sense to fly the simulator, X-Plane 11 at home, but I'd need a new set of goals, say an instrument rating. I'm up to speed on all of the private pilot questions and skills, and I'm simply awaiting the three or God be it 18 months for this pandemic to pass and for life to normalize. Can you talk a little about your check ride? My first attempt to pass the check ride was expensive and ridiculous. The examiner, I'll call him Tom, show me the money, said he had an early hard stop, but that we would have plenty of time. Well, he showed up a little late complained of traffic, and then he got all balled up on getting the IACRA flight experience to line up to the tenth of an hour between dual instruction, solo time, and simulator time. To me, this made little sense since I had nearly 200 hours in my logbook. How could two or three hours of addition mistakes matter? Between my flight instructor and the examiner, it took about an hour to reconcile a few hours difference between various columns in my logbook. In the grand scheme, I now understand 
this pompous silliness guaranteed that we'd lack the time to proceed to the practical exam and that I'd have to pay him to discontinue the exam. Well, I passed the oral and we scheduled the practical, but wind shear warnings and pure crosswinds forced us to reschedule a few times before we could fly. By that time, the Palo Alto airport was dug up in preparation for a complete resurfacing. We had to back taxi on the main runway and you couldn't even do pattern work. I didn't know where we'd head for our pattern work and maneuvers, so I asked the examiner to, to name the departure to request. At least that way I'd know, you know where on the map to look. I pre-flighted the airplane, paying particular attention to non-checklist items like washing the windows. Give me the money, complained about his sore back and said I could skip any pre-taxi passenger brief that I prepared. I started the engine, got ground clearance and slowly taxied to the run-up area. Take my money told me to slow down and asked why I hadn't leaned the engine for taxi. I explained that my instructor had explicitly taught me not to lean since leaning is not part of the Cessna 172 Skyhawk POH. During the run-up, I checked the mags, announced the RPM differences, even checked the autopilot and asked whether he'd like a normal takeoff. I reminded myself to start the clock, close the window, call out checklist responses, and set the G1000 full screen map resolution. Once cleared by the tower to back taxi on 3-1, I aggressively taxied and made the 180 degree turn uh, beyond the threshold. I idled back up to the threshold. The examiner asked why I taxied so quickly and why I had proceeded to the threshold instead of holding position a little further back. I replied that I was trying to keep our time on the runway short to optimize airport operations and that I'd taken the threshold out of pure neurotic response to having an examiner in the right seat. The DPE growled taxi at six knots, no faster. I applied full power, set the clock in motion, and suddenly the examiner called, abort takeoff and taxi off the runway. I was floored. Now what had I done? We taxied off the same taxiway we had entered from, but this presented a new problem. We were spinner to spinner with a plane waiting to take the runway. I stopped, frozen. The tower asked me if I had room to get by the whirling propeller nearly in front of me. I replied yes and promptly turned a hard 90 degrees right, crossed the double yellow line and crossed a newly paved section of asphalt painted green. The examiner asked, why did you cross the double yellow line? I thought a second and replied, that was my prerogative as PIC. I considered it safer to cross over the asphalt than to carefully taxi into someone else's spinning propeller. He didn't say anything about that. Once stopped, DPE Take Your Money said, he had aborted this takeoff because my alternate altimeter was 100 feet off from the G1000. Somehow, in all the fuss of washing windows, paper maps, checklists, and handwritten pre-flight briefings, printed nav logs, rulers, and E6Bs, I had not reset the alternate altimeter, which is always the first thing I do after opening the door. I corrected it, and the examiner says to call ground and report 
we were ready for departure once again. Now, doubly nervous, I taxi more slowly, do my 180 degree turn as far down the runway as possible and get us in the air. As soon as we're in the air, the instructor fails my MFT. No airspace, no collision avoidance, which is why I fly the G1000 in the first place. I noticed that I hadn't started my clock, so at the first waypoint, I start it and mentally add a minute to the waypoint. As we approach the second waypoint, he tells me to, to divert to NAFA and tell him the distance. But since I'm a PhD in computer science, he respectfully doesn't ask me to convert the distance to gallons. Here I am prepared. I've tested the autopilot. I have the autopilot hold altitude and a 30 degree bank while I estimate the distance to NAFA on my map. All good with the diversion, he tells me to head to Reed Hillview. I say that I prefer heading there by way of San Antonio Reservoir. He says, no, Scud Run over Fremont. Now, I've never gone that way over Fremont because there's Class Charlie airspace to avoid. I desperately look through my sectional, but there's not enough detail about the Class Charlie around Fremont. And I had tossed my terminal area map into the seat behind me because I hadn't been able to scoot the seat forward with that map in its clipboard. Here, I should have turned the moving back, back the moving map back on as PIC, but I didn't because I hadn't prepared to defend myself from this kind of emotional abuse. I head to Fremont with no idea where the class Charlie begins. Abruptly, the examiner says, turn 40 degrees to the left immediately. Anyway, we get to Reed Hillview. I check in with the tower, get right pattern for three zero right, and nervously fly too tight of a pattern, but with flip, flaps and a slip, get the plane landed smoothly, but without a flare, with, without flare nor stall horn. We do another normal takeoff, and again, I fly too tight a pattern. He calls for a no flap full stop, and despite a vigorous slip, I have to go around. The third time, again, I fly too tight a pattern, and he calls for a power off landing. I vigorously slip again. The DPE braces himself for a hard landing, but with flaps, I bounce a, a little, but we get, we get off at the last exit. Since the MFD and safe taxi is failed, I can't remember which taxiway is Zulu and which is Yankee at Reed Hillview. He asks if I have the chart supplement with me and I show him for flight online, which is on my knee. And he says, no, that doesn't count. The chart supplement needs to be hard copy. The DPE tells me to stop the plane and do whatever I have to do to settle my nerves. I run a quick quarter mile and drop and take 20 push-ups. I don't feel nervous, but neither can I do anything right. I'm constantly second guessing myself with the examiner in the right seat. Next to us, a baron starts up and immediately pumps up a menacing trail of dark, acrid smoke. Something is seriously wrong. I worry that the SOB is going to have an in-flight engine failure. I ask the DPE to call the pilot on the radio to warn him that he has a problem. The DPE declines, says the SOB has it coming to him. I jump back into the plane myself and call the Baron, who sheepishly thanks me and admits he left his boost pump on accidentally. 
The tower asks us to cross three zero right and line up and wait for three zero left. Again, I'm second guessing myself. Okay, we're doing a short field takeoff, but I forget if yellow means I have to taxi to the displaced threshold or if I can uh, take off from, from uh, where I'd enter the runway. I decide it doesn't matter because we have 3,300 feet of runway and I only need 900. Everything is going too fast, so I buy time by climbing slowly at 60% uh, power. I fly too close to a pattern again because I don't have my moving map and I don't want to stray into San Jose airspace. Just to confuse the issue one more time, the tower asked me to land 30 right, which means I have to cross through 30 left and line up on the right. The DPE gets all nervous and says that I've went too far on the base turn and that now I'm encroaching on the 30 right downwind traffic. Again, I wish I had my extended center lines and collision avoidance, but the MFT is off. I bounce another normal landing, and he intimates that I ought to pretend to be airsick and discontinue. Our flight back to Palo Alto was uneventful. We turned the MFD back on, and I made a perfect first exit landing. I don't remember whether or not he chided me to taxi slower. Now, what is something that you wished you had known uh, about flying before you started? Well, the first time we waited for an IFR release, it hit me. Between plane and instructor, I paid $300 an hour to sit on my tuchus in a Datsun B210 equivalent. Seriously, I have to accept the high cost of flying, and I can't be anxious watching the Hobbs counter. So have you had any um, notable experiences um, in while flying uh, on lessons or solos? Once while in the pattern with my instructor at Palo Alto, the cabin filled with the odor of burned electronics. It took a few seconds to see that the battery was discharging, that the voltage regulator or the regulator and alternator had fried. I really wanted to get the craft on the ground, not because I was worried about the battery going dead, but because I feared an uncontrollable electrical fire. After a few seconds, it was clear that shutting down the alternator master contained the burning electronics. I had what appeared to be an alternator failure while on the ground six cross-country hours from home on a different flight. We started the plane and the battery failed to charge. We cycled on and off the master to no avail. What made it interesting is that we chose to fly 45 minutes to Bozeman on the standby battery, standby so that we saved the master for the flaps in case we needed to do an off-field landing for any reason. I say off-field landing because Bozeman has a 9,000-foot runway, and I imagine we could have landed at no flaps without uh, trouble with that, just with that uh, long runway. I called flight service to get the Bozeman Tower phone number, linked my Bluetooth to my headset, and explained to the tower that we expected to have radio calm, but we'd call them by cell phone if our battery failed before we arrived. That I enjoyed that practice. I had seen that, uh, read about doing that and making and calling people on the tower by cell phone, and I'm glad that I had the experience preparing for the dead battery. 
Yeah. So what ratings do you want to get if you want any? You know, the specific rating is less important than the continual skills improvement. The only ambivalence I feel is the high carbon footprint of aviation compared to, say, biking or playing soccer. Burning 25 gallons of gas before lunch is really easy in a plane. So what advice would you have for someone who is just thinking about getting into the aviation World. Playing soccer or even golf is fantastically cheaper than renting a plane. And every time I compute the cost of plane ownership, I gag. So you really have to, it's the same advice I give somebody to somebody who wants to get a PhD. You know, you only get a PhD if you would feel incomplete without one. And I say the same thing about being a pilot. You know, you only want to be a, if you are incomplete without your certificate, then you should go and do it. Otherwise, it's ridiculously expensive. So what is on your aviation bucket? That's an easy one. I'd like to fly cross country with our podcast host, my son, to see the USA together and eventually to fly to the Bahamas in Baja, California. So what lessons have you learned while flying? Flying has reinforced what I know about my personal limits. While I'm downright brilliant on untimed tests of raw intelligence and ingenuity, I've always known that my reaction times suck, that I have poor fine and growth coordination and have a smaller working memory. I chose to be a research scientist which favors intelligence and intuition over coordination and working memory. For example, I learned to compensate for my coordination in soccer by becoming excessively physically fit for my age. Flying BFR challenges my very essence. I've known of my poor recall memory since kindergarten when I couldn't recall names and frequently failed to recognize my classmates. In aviation, detailed tower and ground instructions overwhelm my working memory. So I'd say that aviation reinforces what I know about my strengths and weaknesses. I'm still learning to compensate for those weaknesses. For example, I've learned to fly with two knee boards as it gives me enough real estate to scribble notes. So if you ever wanted to know how to do one thing related to aviation, what do you think it would be? I'm at the beginning of my aviation hobby. For now, I just want to fly safely. And not and not mess up. Well, do you have anything to say before we end this episode? Uh, no, I really enjoyed uh, the, your questions. Thanks so much. Sure. So, bye. Well, I hope that episode was interesting because I most certainly do. If you have any questions about this, please direct them to my email, flyinginmorepodcast at gmail.com, or just use the link in the description. Also, please consider making a monthly donation to the Flying In More podcast for just um, as little as zero ninety nine a month. A monthly donation makes this podcast possible so that I can continue making episodes. 
Another reason to support this podcast is so that I can improve my recording equipment. Like right now, I'm recording this on my phone. So I think there could be some long way to go to make it better. Just go to anchor.fm slash augustdanzig. That's august-danzig. Or follow the link in the description below to help make this podcast better. This is August Danzig signing off with the Flying and More podcast. Join us on the next episode coming out soon.